Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, May 19th. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Jay Doherty. And I'm Maya Sargent. And here are this week's feature stories. There's a center in the Bronx that offers free cooking classes and barista training to the local community including unhoused New Yorkers. WFUV's Rosie Lenz talks with representatives from Ali's Place Center about how their program is helping people prepare for the workforce. Ali's Place is a homeless shelter and resource center in the Bronx. While they provide emergency services for unhoused New Yorkers, their work is also a little more longstanding. Ali's Place runs the Center for Culinary Education and Employment, It's a center that trains adult students for employment in a variety of food industry settings. They teach them skills and provide hands-on experience needed for different jobs. Two of their programs include barista training and culinary essentials. The barista training program runs every two weeks and lasts three days. The program is run by Jada Gabriel, a pastry chef and assistant chef instructor. She described the schedule. On the first day, we do hot beverages, second day we do ice beverages and baking, and the third day we operate our mock pop-up shop here at Ali's Place. I visited the mock pop-up coffee shop called Ali's Coffee Spot to see some of the students in action. Good morning. They were taking orders, making coffee, and serving different pastries they had learned to make. Linda was one of the students at the coffee shop. Amazing. My experience so far has been amazing. The teachers are really awesome. They make it really easy for you to learn. I really like to cook. Um, Most of the things that we have here today we did from scratch, which was pretty amazing. It's like a little family here. Linda is mentored by Jada, the assistant chef instructor that you heard from earlier. Jada told me that her favorite part about being an instructor at the center is watching her students grow more confident in the kitchen. My favorite part about teaching is when we get a new student that's never been in the kitchen before, even though it's a short three-day program, I see them whipping around the kitchen because I feel like I've prepped them and they know what they're doing. So I see the confidence building. So that's the best part. It's rewarding. The center wants students to leave the course with the proper experience they need to start their careers. Noreen is a former student of the center and now works there helping people complete the same training she did. Noreen hopes they carry their newfound confidence with them into the world even after they've finished the program. You have the confidence of, you know, you can do this too. You, it doesn't just mean that you can get it from a restaurant. You can do it yourself from scratch. And, you know, people get excited about, wow, this is really, like, this exists. Like, we can actually do this even if it's just in a mini course. By offering these skills, the Center for Culinary Education and Employment is helping their community. Councilmember Farias from District 18 in the Bronx agrees. She says the center's work has rippling effects that last much longer than the short programs. Because they're not just serving who's within their you know, four walls, they are serving the community at large. She attended one of the pop-up coffee shops at the end of April after touring Allie's place. Um, and I had a really great time there because they even threw an apron on me and taught me how to make some drinks. The center hopes people will get involved with their programs. All of the courses are free and are skills you can add to a resume for future jobs. You can learn more about the Center for Culinary Education and Employment, including their class schedule and registration details, by searching Allie's Place Culinary. That's A-L-L-I-E-S Place Culinary. With WFUV News, I'm Rosie Lenz. 
That was WFUV's Rosie Lenz talking to representatives from Alley's Place Center in the Bronx. The House of Cannabis in Soho is a multi-sensory exhibit that highlights the history of marijuana. WFUV's Isabel Danzis went downtown to learn about how the museum is honoring cannabis culture and reckoning with the plant's sometimes controversial past. When you first enter the culture floor of Soho's new House of Cannabis, THC NYC, you're met with an immersive video about the history of cannabis culture. The museum is dedicated to cannabis and how it is used and impacts lives. Marcel Fry, the co-founder of the museum, says the House of Cannabis intends to honor the plant because it has impacted lives for thousands of years. The House of Cannabis, THC NYC, is a multi-sensory experience that journeys guests into and through the world of cannabis. Mm -hmm. We felt that uh, cannabis really deserved a very elevated home because it's something that has been a part of people's lives for 6,000 years. The House of Cannabis is divided into three floors. The top floor focuses on culture and how cannabis has shaped music, the arts, fashion, and more. The second centers on agriculture. It shows off cannabis growing and explains what specific properties of the plant can do when consumed. And lastly, the final floor is Ascension. The Ascension floor features the Hypnodrome. It is an immersive 10 minute long hypnotic journey. Imagine a movie theater, big comfy chairs in rows in front of a screen. When the presentation starts, this music starts playing and colors appear on the screen. They spread onto the walls and the ceiling, melting and growing into new colors, shapes, and spaces. And this whole experience is marketed as a way to meet your higher self. We wanted people to just be completely immersed and engaged and curious. And so we designed an experience that was very accurate and would reach cannabis aficionado, aficionados, um, recreational cannabis users, medical cannabis users, as well as the can of curious. We've had a, lots of people come in that don't um, actually use cannabis and they absolutely love it. However, in addition to showing off how marijuana can be used to enhance life, the House of Cannabis does not shy away from the tormented past of the substance. I think you can't tell the story of cannabis without telling the story of social justice and social equity, and it was incredibly important to us to do that in a correct manner. Located on floor four, the culture floor, the museum features an exhibit called the Forum. Walking into the exhibit, rectangular screens are placed in a semicircle with a video of a person speaking. Looking at all the screens at once, all the voices blend together, and it's impossible to tell what one person is saying. However, once you stand directly in front of one, the other voices are drowned out, and you can hear one person tell their story. And their stories feature how cannabis has negatively impacted their lives. In addition to showing off cannabis usage in this way, the museum actively deals with the repercussions of a cannabis conviction. The House of Cannabis really likes to walk its talk, and so not only are we 
um, informing the public about these issues and helping them to understand it by breaking it down even further than it's typically broken down and hearing testimony, real testimony from the people that has affected. But it needs to be a part of our DNA. We need to walk our talk. So 30% of our employees and possibly more are all formerly incarcerated. The House of Cannabis partnered with a Second U Foundation. Second U is an organization that focuses on helping formerly incarcerated individuals find careers. Hector Guadalupe is the founder and executive director of Second U. He says the partnership with the House of Cannabis is especially important because of cannabis's history in the United States. It's really important because of the, the racial disparities placed on brown and Latino and black communities that are faced with, with these outrageous um, marijuana convictions um, throughout that we've seen throughout the country. Um, men and women are serving life sentences for pot. Guadalupe says that employing people at the House of Cannabis, especially those with marijuana charges, is a way to stand up against these types of convictions. This is sort of our, um, I would say, the THC um, House of Cannabis and the Second Use pledge against um, this modern-day slavery by hiring some of these returning citizens who have marijuana and, and uh, charges and have served time and have had their lives ruined because of cannabis convictions, and now showing that they can be employed at, at, at this really, really cool museum and build careers and move on to be productive uh, uh, citizens and professionals. The House of Cannabis is a permanent installation in Soho. I'm Isabel Danzis, WFUV News. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzis at the House of Cannabis in Soho. For this month's installment of Fordham Conversations, WFUV's David Escobar sits down with Fordham history professor Asaf Siddiqui to discuss his new book that breaks down the history of modern pop music. Something I can tell from the set list, if you will, in this book is the diversity of the music. It's not just pop, but also rock and rap, everything in between. So why was that diversity so important to you? I knew what I didn't want to do, which was just focus on one genre. I, I knew that right off the bat because pop music is so wide and expansive. And I also knew that I didn't want it to be about a bunch of rock bands. That's also, you know, I wanted to take pop music and everything seriously. And the other guiding thing was I wanted it to be everything from the 60s to now. Uh, but a lot of it was deliberate. I did want not to have one genre, one type of person. I wanted to have a gender, uh, some sort of gender distribution. Those kinds of things were in the back of my head. Yeah, for sure. I feel like nowadays music can seem purely commercial, kind of money grabby, but the music in your book is highly subversive and countercultural. So how do you capture that history? The striking thing for is that the history of pop has a long tradition of engaging in important social issues and even things that are seemingly just kind of frivolous and throwaway three-minute pop songs can often talk about something very important and deep. One of the other things I'm thinking about is this idea of the life cycle of a song that you touch on in the book and what songs can tell us about their time periods. So what are some of those moments you talk about in the book? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to get at 
through each song, get into that moment of time in history. So if it was, for example, Bowie's Rebel, Rebel in 74, and the author, Glenn Hendler, who is a professor at English at Fordham, you know, he sort of really tries to tap into what's going on in radio in America at that time. Um, and all the all the songs, to some degree or other, do that. I think uh, MIA, I think the essay really tries to get at something in the post-9-11 world. If you catch me at the border, I got visas in my name. If you come around here, I'll make a more day. I get one down in a second if you wait. You could talk to me about MIA all day. Paper Planes is so good. But on the other side, could you dive a little deeper into the song's sort of cultural commentary? Um, I just started to sort of deconstruct it a little bit. You know, it samples. It has some cool samples from The Clash. It has a kind of this sort of awesome comment on, you know, the cash register, ka-ching, that's, that sound, and the, the guns firing off. I thought that was really cool, that sort of balance between capitalism and sort of violence. But more to the point, I was also interested in her story. She's a British citizen of Sri Lankan origin. And what it meant for maybe a brown person to suddenly get super famous in the world of pop, Western pop. And I, I just wanted to sort of deconstruct that a little bit. There's also a gender story that I wanted to tell because she had put together this song. But the questions to her were always about, well, who's who's the engineer behind it? Who's the guy behind it? And, she, and naturally, she was very defensive. You know, she's, she's the one who made the song. So I wanted to track a little bit how our expectations of technology and recording studios are very gendered. We just expect there's some brilliant engineer guy doing all the stuff. And that song was a wonderful way to talk about those issues of how even in this sort of supposedly progressive world of pop, we still go back to these old patriarchal notions of, you know, men get to do the engineering and women just sing. And she's very much in charge of her whole complete image and everything. And I wanted to get at that. The thing I'm most captivated about in this new world of music is this whole process of consuming music and how that's changed since the 60s with streaming services and TikTok. But in the broadest sense, how has technology changed the music industry overall? Yeah, I mean, this is a profoundly important question, I think. And technology has just really fundamentally shifted the way we consume music um, probably in the last 10, 15 years. For, for the most part in the 20th century, let's say beginning the 1930s and 40s, we would have to buy records. Streaming really disrupted that that trade sort of uh, of consumption, well, for the most part, almost everything that's ever been made is at your fingertips right now in an instant. And that I think brings to it the issue of maybe 20, 30 years ago, there was this notion, there was this relative scarcity. So you had to go and go to a record store and get something. And maybe it wasn't there at the record store. You would have to come home without the song. But now you have the song at your fingertips all the time. And I think that changes our relationship to music because we, if everything is available all the time, I think there's something that we we don't necessarily understand the value of it because it's just there. Uh, whereas I think if you had to maybe work a little bit to access it, you might feel differently about the song itself. And I think 
that's just one of the changes. There's many more. I think the whole issue of TikTok, I think, is really interesting to me because because of the length of the clips. They're not even quite three minutes. And so you don't even bother with the whole song anymore. You just want the little, the best part of it is in TikTok. And then you just move on. That was Fordham Conversations host David Escobar speaking with Fordham professor Asof Siddiqui about his new book, One Track Mind. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Here at WFUV News, we're celebrating by sharing three different stories about how heritage is honored here in New York City. WFUV's Christina Lulich sat down with Fordham student-athlete Tanya Tan to talk about how she has found a home away from home through her university experience. Tanya Tan is one of many student-athletes across the world who immigrated to the United States. She attends Fordham University and is a senior on the track and field team. But migrating from one place to another is not something new for Tanya and her family. Her father is originally from Hong Kong, and he immigrated to the island of Guam, a U.S. territory in the Mariana Islands. Like Tanya, her father also found a community through playing sports. He's really into soccer, so actually he found his community through like playing club soccer on Guam. He found out that a lot of people on the team were actually Chinese, so like from Hong Kong and Taiwan. And then from then, he just created friends. Her father expanded his family business and then moved to another island called Saipan. It borders Hawaii and the Philippines. That's where Tanya grew up. She says moving from an island with roughly 40,000 people to the biggest city in the world was a huge culture shock. Everyone basically knew everyone. Like, if you didn't go out and you, like, didn't see someone you know, like, it was just weird that that didn't happen. You're basically, like, family coming here where, like, you're basically, like, one in a million and, like, no one knows you and everything was a bit of a change. While Tanya's interest in track and field began in Saipan, she noticed that she would face some obstacles once joining the track and field team at Fordham. We did have really limited resources, really limited competition as well because the island was so small. This led to Tanya working closely with her coach so that she could be on the same level as everyone else. Even though Tanya had to work extra hard, being on the track and field team allowed her to find a family while hers was so far away. So I spend like a lot of time with my teammates. So that gave me like a sense of community that I build friendships on. And then I guess now we're like lifelong friends, I hope. <laughs> Aside from the track and field team, Tanya also found a sense of community in the Asian Cultural Exchange Club. She was able to connect with her Asian culture with students who share the same interests. One of those interests being food. They do food outings, and of course, sometimes you miss, like, home-cooked food. And since my parents are Asian, like, going to those food outings with people of similar cultural backgrounds, eating, like, the same food, does make me feel, like, included and, like, more at home. While migrating to New York City did present its challenges, Tanya suggests change is something that people shouldn't be afraid to try. Keep persevering when times do get tough because it does get better, even though change is scary. I feel like it helps you grow as a person, an individual, whether that be like physically or mentally. Through the track and field team and Asian Cultural Exchange Club at Fordham, Tanya was able to make New York City her home. I'm Christina Lulich, WFUV News. That was WFUV's Christina Lulich talking to Tanya Tan about her experience immigrating to the United States as a student athlete. 
And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV Newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What Daily Podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews, just like the ones you heard, exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Jay Doherty. And I'm Maya Sargent.